0: Faye, it feels really nice to be back and recording podcasts again after parental leave. But, you know, even six weeks later, I feel like I have missed a whole world of things in OBGYN.
1: Yeah, me too, especially nine weeks out. But thankfully for us, um, we can refresh our memory with the OBG project.
0: That's right. The OBG project kind of has their great, great summaries in these bullet point formats online. They've got resident exclusive resources, the core curriculum, um, and they've got a new project in the primary care med project. Um, you can check that out as well, which lets you get up to date with all those primary care guidelines that we got to keep up with too.
1: And even better, if you're a resident, remember that you can get OBG first absolutely free. So if you want to figure out how to do that, go ahead and go onto our website, click on the sidebar, and link to the OBG project.
0: All right, welcome back, guys. This is Nick. This is Faye. And this is... Preyogs.
1: Over coffee.
0: All right. So today we're back um, to talk part two of really this new labor guidance that came from ACOG. Remember the clinical practice guideline number eight. Last time we talked through the first stage of labor and some of you who have practiced with this may have noted some new things, but also may have noted that a lot seemed really unchanged. Today, Faye, we're going to talk second stage. So what are our learning objectives?
1: Yes. So today we're going to describe what constitutes an abnormal second stage of labor and how to manage it. And we're also going to contrast the new um, practice guideline eight guidance with um, the now retired ACOG and SMFM obstetric care consensus number one. Remember last time, as you said, we talked about the first stage of labor. And so today we're going to talk second stage from dilation to fetal delivery. And there are some big differences here versus the previous obstetric care consensus. So we're going to try and point them out as we go. So before we get to abnormal, Nick, let's talk about normal. What is normal second stage?
0: Yeah, so really ACOG defines what they call a prolonged second stage as three hours or more of second stage length in a nulliparous patient or two hours or more of a second stage length in a multiparous patient. So again, from complete dilation until fetal delivery, three hours for nullip, two hours for multip. Um there's further language here that ACOG recommends an individualized approach to the diagnosis of second stage arrest that incorporates quote unquote factors regarding progress, clinical factors that may affect the likelihood of vaginal delivery, discussions of risks and benefits of available interventions, and individual patient preference, closed quote, if you're planning to move beyond this three hours for nullups, two hours for multips. Um, ACOG also additionally states that the second stage arrest can be diagnosed earlier than these thresholds if there's lack of fetal rotation or descent, despite adequate contractions, pushing effort, and time allotted. Um, So Faye, this is really open and individualized and different than what it was before, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Because before, um, as some of you may recall, it was very time focused with that like four, three, three, two recommendation um, in the obstetric care consensus. So we'll kind of go over that a little bit. So the obstetric care consensus also stated that there was no maximum amount of time in the second stage identified, and the recommendation to consider diagnosis prior to reaching these time points is based on some concerns that developed in the literature that providers were failing to recognize issues in the second stage altogether by focusing on this four. 4- four, three, three, two time and that the four, three, three, two, recommendations were not based in evidence supporting safety. So this practice guideline actually takes an attempt at establishing some evidence. So there was an observational study of over 53,000 laboring patients and the probability of vaginal delivery decreased with prolonged pushing time. So at the four hour mark though, the chance of vaginal delivery in a nulliparous patient remains 78%, which is still more than half. And at two hours, the chance of vaginal delivery in a multiparous patient remained 81%. So the longer pushing duration resulted in statistically significant rise in composite neonatal morbidity, however. Um, So the absolute risk difference, though, was still quite small, less than 1%. And other studies have been mixed about neonatal outcomes with respect to prolonged second stage. So basically, the other things that we need to take away is that longer pushing duration does result in a rise in maternal risk. So these things include things like third and fourth degree lacerations, operative vaginal delivery, postpartum hemorrhage, and cesarean delivery. Now, The other thing is, if you remember in the obstetric care consensus, you might remember the additional hour of pushing time was allotted for patients who had epidurals. And the question, of course, Nick, is, is that the same here, right? Do we get an additional hour of pushing?
0: Yeah. So in the text of the clinical practice guideline, based on the Consortium for Safe Later Data, um... The authors admit that the second stage was prolonged by about an additional hour in patients who had an epidural, but they still say that you should take into account other things like position of the baby, like for instance, an OP position might prolong pushing, um, maternal BMI, fetal weight, and the fetal station that was observed at the time of complete dilation. Really, again, not to completely say everybody nullip with epidural should get four hours, but to take a look at that individual patient and say, huh, well, if we're reaching three hours, why haven't we reached it yet, and is it reasonable, or do I believe that it's safe to continue at this point, Um, knowing that there's potentially a rise in composite neonatal morbidity, and there certainly is longer pushing duration tied to that maternal risk, as you described, Faye. Studies performed sort of since the obstetric care consensus have demonstrated that while if you prolong the second stage by an additional hour, you get more vaginal deliveries. They're actually, again, in these studies performed since the obstetric care consensus really do highlight more this increased risk of neonatal acidemia, NICU admission, and the risk of third and fourth degree laceration for mom. So again, individualized discussions, individualized management are highly encouraged. So Really, I think there are two things to keep in mind that this practice guideline offers. One is that ongoing management of the second stage or continuing to move forward presumes continued demonstration of descent. So these limits are total expected time for the second stage from dilation to delivery. So if you're not seeing anything, in terms of descent going on, that is certainly a cause for concern. And the likelihood that you achieve vaginal delivery by three hours, as opposed to allowing somebody to push for three hours, is the way that you should be framing this. The second thing that was important to keep in mind is that 95% of patients, which is a new fact to me, are at zero station or lower on the minus five to plus five scale at the time of complete dilation. So if you have a patient who is complete complete in minus two or minus one, I think intuitively a lot of us would say that's concerning, but this guideline really kind of points out to say if you have a patient that is not at zero station at the time of complete dilation, you should be concerned for what would become an abnormal second stage. Okay, so that is sort of gonna focus on definitions and seeing this sort of new individualized management, a little bit of push on, you know, do we allow it to be prolonged, a little bit of push on calling a second stage arrest earlier if it seems like the writing's on the wall. But let's say, Faye, that we're concerned or into a prolonged second stage. What does this document give us about um, the management of the prolonged
1: second stage? Yeah. So the document goes over three things. The first of which is pushing timing. So ACOC recommends commencing pushing when complete cervical dilation is achieved. So ACOC discusses the controversy surrounding delayed pushing or passive descent in the document, um, raising the findings of a recent high-profile randomized controlled trial, as well as meta-analysis of 12 trials on the subject. And the arguments go that delayed pushing minimizes patient exertion with pushing efforts because you're letting that fetal head kind of come down passively, while immediate Pushing more closely mimics the physiology of unanesthetized patients whose pain makes them push earlier, right? If you have ever managed a patient who does not have an epidural, they just can't help but to push once they get to completely dilated. And among high-quality studies, delayed pushing doesn't improve vaginal delivery rates, and additionally, delayed pushing prolongs time and labor, and in the high-profile randomized controlled trial, the study was stopped early because of increased rates of things like chorioamnionitis, postpartum hemorrhage, and neonatal acidemia in the delayed pushing arm. So basically, the answer is, get to pushing. <laughs> um The next thing that they talk about is manual rotation. So positions of the fetal head at OT or OP can be difficult to achieve, um, can be difficult to achieve vaginal delivery due to the mechanics of the fetal head within the pelvis. So you can use a hand to rotate the head into an OA position, um, and this has been demonstrated in observational studies to be successful about 70% of the time while reducing C-section and operative delivery rates um, and not causing infant harm. However, a randomized controlled trial comparing a sham rotation to true rotation did not demonstrate any benefit, but was not powered to determine any risk of harm. Though, of course, I kind of want to know how they were doing this sham of like putting in your hand to like truly rotate or not rotating. Now, knowing the position of the fetal spine may also help influence success because this has been demonstrated in one randomized controlled trial. So don't be afraid to have an ultrasound. So to one, confirm the fetal head before rotation. So to make sure you're not rotating an OA baby to OP. And then also it really helps to know which way the baby is laying to help you know which way to actually rotate that head. The timing of manual rotation actually has not been adequately studied, so it can be performed at any point in the second stage if it's possible. The last thing they talk about, Nick, is operative delivery. So talk to us a little bit more about what they discuss.
0: Yeah. So ACOG in this document comes out and outright suggests that a patient have an assessment for operative vaginal delivery before performing a cesarean for second stage arrest. Um, it just struck me, maybe I just was ignorant before, but it struck me as being more forceful in terms of suggesting this assessment. And really the rationale behind it, um, is that outcome comparisons of operative vaginal delivery and unplanned cesarean delivery demonstrate reduced neonatal morbidity after a successful operative delivery, and there are similar rates of serious neonatal morbidity between the two outcomes. This, of course, isn't a surprise to our listeners who have tuned into our operative vaginal delivery podcast before, but just as a reminder, remember the rate of intracranial hemorrhage are similar for second stage cesarean delivery and vacuum delivery, and then failure rates are low. Overall, um, for operative delivery, under 3% for low or outlet procedures. So, again, if you're in a place where it is reasonable to proceed with operative vaginal delivery, again, you end up with reduced short term maternal morbidity and similar rates of serious neonatal morbidity. That said, no, operative delivery is a skill um, that requires training, requires repetition, Um, and as recent trainees ourselves, we're more than acutely aware of the fact that opportunities to become facile with operative delivery are becoming less frequent. Um, Mm -hmm. Cesarean is still kind of the safety backstop, right? So if you can't perform an operative delivery, if your facility doesn't have the ability to perform operative delivery or a patient declines operative delivery, cesarean is still the option, right? And it's also the option, again, if an operative delivery fails after an attempt. You do need to be prepared, though, in these situations for higher rates of endometritis and for more significant bleeding and hysterotomy extensions. Remember, too, that we had a recent podcast on difficult fetal extraction, really focusing in on this, you know, deep second stage cesarean. Um, you'll encounter this more frequently with second stage cesareans, and so we hope that that podcast is helpful as well as you think about this if you're encountering second stage C-sections. All right, Faye, well, I think that does it for our review of this new guidance on the second stage of labor. Why don't we try and summarize?
1: Sure. So first of all, we talk about, you know, what exactly does prolonged second stage mean, which is three hours or more in nulliparous and two hours or more in multiparous. But now there uh, the, the specific document discusses individualized approach to diagnosing second stage arrest and also saying that the second stage arrest can be diagnosed earlier if there's a lack of rotation or descent.
0: Again, contrasting this to the prior obstetric care consensus that was the 4332 recommendation that you may be familiar with, um, really there was concern that developed in the literature that folks were awaiting that 4332 time point before calling a caesarean um, and not considering sort of the safety things surrounding either maternal or neonatal risk. Studies performed since that time have demonstrated. With prolonged second stage, even by that additional hour, even though it results in more vaginal deliveries, it increases the risk of neonatal acidemia, NICU admission, and third and fourth degree laceration. So ACOG recommends, number one, an individualized discussion surrounding management, incorporating all of the data available to you about second stage, Number two, ongoing management of the second stage should presume continued demonstration of fetal descent, where this is the total time of the second stage until delivery, not the amount of time that is allowed for pushing. And then number three, 95% of patients are at zero station or lower at complete dilation. So if your patient is higher than this, that also should be a concerning sign.
1: We then discuss how to manage prolonged second stage, and this is divided into three portions, pushing timing, manual rotation, and operative delivery. Pushing really should begin at the time that the patient is found to be completely dilated to hopefully... um, mimic the physiology of unanesthetized patients. And this is in part uh, due to data from high quality studies, including a high profile randomized control trial, as well as uh, other meta-analyses. We also discuss manually rotating the head from OT or OP to OA, which can be successful about 70% of the time. And just making sure that we know the position of the fetal spine and the true position of the fetal head. Finally, ACOG does suggest an assessment for operative vaginal delivery before performing C-sections for second-stage arrest. Um, And we know that the outcomes of operative vaginal delivery and unplanned C-sections demonstrate reduced maternal morbidity after a successful operative delivery. However, we also know that operative delivery does require special skill training, and this has overall potentially become less frequent in terms of training and skill set. It is also important to understand that if the operative delivery fails, then that does mean that the patient needs a C-section and that may be a more difficult C-section that may result in things like higher rates of endometritis or more significant bleeding. All right, Nick, I think that brings us to the end of this podcast. So once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this has been Creams Over Coffee.
0: So guys, if you enjoyed the podcast today, head over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, whatever your podcatcher is, give us a five-star rating and review.
1: You can find us on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Kriags Over Coffee, on X at Kriags Over Coffee One. And if you want to support the show, go ahead and go onto our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Coffee.
0: There are show notes for this podcast as well as all of our prior podcasts on our website at www.kriegsovercoffee.com.
1: And if you have suggestions for a show, you have recommendations for us, or you have caught a mistake or just want to reach out, email us, kriegsovercoffee at gmail.com.